the reason Powell is raising rates is because he's trying to fight inflation. Mm-hmm. And the more he raises rates, the more economic turmoil that seems to be causing. Right. Namely, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, in, in the uh, realm of bank failures. Okay, so that's starting to happen. Another bank failed this week, which we'll talk about in a minute. Bankless Nation, it is the first Friday of May. It's Friday morning. Hope you brought your coffee. David, what time is it? Uh, Ryan, it's the uh, Bankless Friday weekly roll-up where we cover the entire weekly news in crypto, which is always an ambitious endeavor, yet we persevere nonetheless into the frontier. How are you doing this week, David? David, I'm doing well. I don't Mm -hmm. know if the banks can say the same, though, because Mm -hmm. we got more bank failures Mm -hmm. on the menu. Season two. Season two. That's a big topic. Big topic of conversation. We're also going to talk about Jerome Powell and the Fed raising interest rates. How high can they go? That's the question we got to ask. David, what else are we covering today? Uh, Balaji waves the right white flag on his bet a little bit early. He capitulates as Bitcoin's not going to go to $1 million in the next six weeks. I yeah, think by June seventeenth. June seventeenth was predicted. when it was over. Okay, well, it is May fourth, so he he's waving the white flag. Donated <laughs> donated one point five million dollars, uh, and so we're gonna cover that. And then also uh, there are some other mainnets just dropped. So Eigenlayer mainnet, the Sui mainnet, the Axelar has an announcement, and uh, Lens has uh, a, a layer three that we talked about last week. We got some stats. And then speaking of mainnets, not really mainnet, but Coinbase International. New exchange just got announced. So a bunch of stuff to run through in this Friday weekly roll-up. Yeah, totally. Always jam-packed for you guys. Of course, if you like this episode, if you like what we're doing over here at Bankless, make sure you like and subscribe. That's how we pop up on the charts on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on YouTube. You know how to it do it. It is just really like, important. Subscribe. It's, it's, it's important very important. Yeah, yeah, especially in the bear market. All oh, right. Yeah. Can, you, can you spare a like, Count, guys? Counts, can you, counts for, can you please spare a like. <laughs> <laughs> One thing before we get into the markets today, David, we got to talk about our friends and sponsors over at Swell. Swell is a staking protocol, and this is a staking season. I'm calling it not just spring, but it's also staking season. David, tell them about Swell. Swell is a brand new staking as a service protocol entering the foray of the LSD world. Uh, but since they are brand new, they are charging 0% staking fees. So they are the highest yielding staking provider out on the market. Brand new, simple interface. And one of the new competitive advantages about Swell is that you can also get DeFi yield along with your ETH yield. So some uh, interesting new innovations to be competitive in this market. And they are also looking to frontier technologies to improve the product, something that's getting me excited like DVT is something that is on the Swell roadmap. They Decentralized have this, staking. Yes, yes, squad staking, squad staking, exactly. Uh, they have this thing called a Voyage, which they are teasing. I don't know what's in the Voyage, but it is starting soon, and they would like you to know about it. So there is a link in the show notes to go explore. It is staking season, David. Look at that uh, APR, 4.5% on your ETH. And I don't know about you, David, but risk-free sounds pretty good right now with all the bank failures going around. I'd rather have uh, my ETH in a staking protocol than in a bank account, that's for sure. Protocol or bank? (laughs) Protocol or bank? What you want? What you want? (laughs) Ah, Speaking of that, let's get to the markets today, all right? Mm. How are we looking on a Bitcoin on the week? Are we up? We down? We sideways? It, we are sideways, sideways week. Uh, literally nothing to report. $28,000 and 900. You tell me 20. we could have just skipped this entire week. Yeah. It didn't even matter. Yeah, 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 that's about right. Yeah, not even 1% okay. move on either Bitcoin or Ether 
Is this the same? Both just flat, flat? $1,888. The most interesting thing about Ether right now is that there are three eights in the price. Man, we could have just uh, saved the last roll-up recording clip and just replayed it, huh? Same price. Uh Nothing changed. we got some volatility. We uh, went down to 800. We almost got back above 2,000, but... Uh, ETH Bitcoin ratio also it's flat. Also this, is, this is weirdly Shocker. flat. Yeah, but also Bankless Station. I'll remind you, please po- pull up your tracker apps, your price trackers, and make sure that the prices have not moved in the last twenty four hours. And if you want some of the best charts in the biz, you got to go check out uh, Kraken Pro over here, pro.kraken.com. Professional interface. So all of my charts look uh, very professional mm-hmm. these days, David. It wasn't like that before. And I'm learning how to chart a little slower. Yeah, slowly but sure. It's taking some time. Sure. Uh, well, let's talk about the big news today, David, which is uh, the Fed raising rates. The big news this week, at least. So the Fed just raised rates, interest rates, by 0.25%, or as you like to call it, 25 basis points. I love all right? calling it that. <laughs> I know. You always are speaking always in terms of basis that. points. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the uh, the press release. If you want to read something, uh, you know, kind of boring, and what the uh, what the, what the notes are about this, but five point two five percent between five and five point two five percent range. That's a sixteen year all time high. Hmm. We haven't been higher in interest rate um, in sixteen years. It was sixteen years ago. When was that, David? It was before two thousand and eight. Before the you know financial crash. Mm. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking like mid two thousands. What were you doing in the mid two thousands? Last uh, time the the rates were this high. Middle were you school? buying a house? <laughs> no, <laughs> I was not you, under strain. Did you know that rates existed? Not at, <laughs> at all. No, I just understood that my parents were stressed. <laughs> oh wait, no, this was pre this was pre housing crisis. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, everything was fine. Everything it was, was but fine. it was about to get things were about, about to get bad. To get, yeah, right, right, right. Huh. Right, right. Okay. Oh, so, it does make well, sense that high interest rates created the housing bubble to pop. That makes sense. Do you think uh, kids in middle school right now are talking about inflation or interest rates uh, at all? Or are they just still just way kids in more school? than I was when I was in school? <laughs> <laughs> the kids are getting smarter every generation. That's what's happening, I think. Um, but you know what? This this is kind of the uh, the decision point here, right? Because Jerome Powell has a question uh they want the reason powell is raising rates is because he's trying to fight inflation Mm -hmm. and the more he raises rates the more economic turmoil that seems to be causing namely and we're going to get to this in a little bit in in the uh, realm of bank failures okay so that's starting to happen another bank failed this week which we'll talk about in a minute and i kind of feel like powell is choosing maybe the worst of both worlds like, so we're going to end up with high inflation anyway, and also bank failures. That's my critique as to what's going on. On the other hand, like, I don't know, maybe the guy's actually not in control of anything. It just seems like what happens, David, if we tighten so much that we cause a cascade of 2008-like economic effects, right? We, we just had our third major bank failure this week, and we're still raising rates. It seems like a bad time to be raising rates, but I'm not a central banker. I want to, yeah, I want to present the, actually the counter argument to that point. Go Uh, for it. So we got to, we got to raise rates because inflation's still up, right? Core inflation has not gone down. Uh, The, the more volatile, more expressive uh, inflation has come down, but core inflation, things like services, services and goods have gone up, right? That's the hard part. So that's why we got to keep on raising interest rates. And then when the bank failures, uh, occur, 
that's a sign. That's a sign of raising interest rates. Of course, uh, economics and finance are just harder. And I think that what the Fed is able to do with bailing out these individual banks as they fail is like the Fed is Surgeon raising the interest more rates, surgical. and then they are catching the distressed banks on the way down. So it's not a like an impact. They're just cradling the bank failure into the ground, <laughs> and then they're letting, the and then they're failure. catching the next one, and so oh, they wow. are actually able to continue to increase rates because they are surgically catching the catastrophes that they are causing, which allows them to continue to raise rates because they're not they're they're like oh there's contagion go gotta go catch it, and it's working so far. So far, and so far. maybe, but also has a whole bunch of unintended consequences as well that we'll get to, and I worry about oh, one like, of which is like bank consolidation into too big to fail banks, so that the banking the, sector becomes nationalized. Doesn't sound like it's unintended. That's kind of what's happening, right? Yeah. But I do think the 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 picture you just painted is what the central bankers in Powell would like to have happen, right? Right. I just worry. I think we're gonna get. There's a very real possibility, David. At this point, we get the worst of both worlds in right. that. We're not able to cradle the banks on their way right. down, but we just get cascading bank failures and also high massive high right. inflation, right? So just like, what was the point? I we don't know. Get, That's the risk that we're running. inflation, but economic deflation. Oh, that sounds awful. We'll have to see what happens. I, I, uh, we do know this. Is? That yes. is what stagflation is. That is what um, stagflation is. From the policy statement this week, anyway, the language saying that the, the Fed, this has been you know, previous uh, Fed language, that it anticipates further rate increases would be needed. That wasn't in here. Right. So this does seem like this is the last the top rate of rise. Right. And it was only 25 basis points, as right. you like to say. So I yeah, guess not we that we were big. hoping for the pivot. The pivot Some of people were, we are no yes. longer increasing interest rates and now we're just going to hold it is not exactly the pivot that we were looking for as an industry that has very high risk crypto assets <laughs> on this curve. I mean, we were ultimately, hoping for a reversal. Look, ultimately though, David, I on I want crypto to deserve it. I want our like industry to deserve it and not just be kind of a money printer hedge completely. Like I want us to provide uh, pure utility. I want. Um, the U.S. economy to be in an okay shape, uh, and I don't want things to kind of cascade downward, and you know, just the casino markets to rain. So I'm not sure what the best uh, position is here. But Jim Bianco here has a different take. His take is the Fed knew the risks already of bank failures. Powell knew the risks, and he's being a careless being here. He's being reckless here. Hmm. He puts this in a tweet thread. On February 14th, the Fed board was given a presentation that went through the risks to the banking system due to unrealized losses because of the rapidly rising interest rates. It gave this example of a bank sitting on unrealized losses and particularly vulnerable. This was February 14th, mind you, before the bank failures. Um, after hearing this presentation, Powell went ahead with very hawkish testimony. That was on March 7th and 8th. The probability of a 50 basis point hike on March 22 soared based on Powell's words. And less than 48 hours later, Silicon Valley Bank failed and the Fed backed off to a uh, 25 basis point hike. The point Bianco is making here is that Powell's getting into reckless territory, right? Mm. He's making these policy decisions and then he's seeing bank failures and he's adjusting them a little, but he's still edging towards kind of the, the brink of cascading bank failures. I think Bianco's criticism is he knows this is a risky game. Why mm. are we playing this game with uh, the US banking system right now? So that is the critique. 
of Powell's actions. I guess the illustration that I gave is that, oh, bank failure, Fed steps in and like cradles it on the way down, really depends on that they fail in a very orderly manner. And I don't think that <laughs> that's how fail. that works. I think uh, orderly and contagion banking crisis are not things that I would put into the same sentence. It's a little bit like the the bike wobbling downhill you know yeah. when you start to yeah, oscillate yeah. and it's yeah. like okay now now we're oscillating right here and then it gets to a point where it's catastrophic unrecoverable and the bike tips over if it's going right. too fast and that no, is no, the no, worry no. here if it's going too slow and if it's going too slow it's because interest rates are adding friction to economic transactions and so in order to correct for wobbles we need it to go faster which means we gotta lower the interest rates baby <laughs> we gotta take them down let's get that fed pivot going well, David, I think that's what we have to talk about next. First Republic bank failure, the biggest since 2008. That's coming up next. What else we got? Coinbase International launches in Bermuda. So one trad bank down, but one crypto bank up. Eigenlayer mainnet is incoming as well. The SUI mainnet as well. Bankless listener, put a number in your mind as to what you think the market cap of SUI is because that number will come later in the show as soon as we talk to these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially Kraken, our preferred crypto exchange for 2023, the one that we all know and love while we watched the charts earlier in this episode. If you do not have an account with Kraken, consider signing up using that link in the show notes. Let's go hear from Kraken right now. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Bankless is launching the Bankless Token Hub. At Bankless, we've been studying the crypto markets ever since 2017, and all of our research has led us to this, the Token Hub. You're a one-stop shop for alpha to help you navigate through the crypto markets. Have you ever wished for a trusted resource that would share their thoughts, ratings, and their opinions about tokens? Boy, do we have the product for you. The Bankless Token Hub is where we provide bankless citizens with the alpha on the hottest tokens in crypto. We do the research so you don't have to. The Bankless Token Hub includes the token ratings, where our team shares their research and outlook on the hottest tokens in crypto. Also, the Token Hub includes Bankless Bags, our own internal investment club. Bankless Bags is where we put our money where our mouth is. And for the Bankless Power user out there, you can access the analyst team 24-7 inside the Bankless Nation Discord. You can ask them questions and learn from a group of people deep in the weeds of crypto investing. The last feature of the Token Hub is the ability to upvote or downvote token ratings. The Bankless Token Hub lets you learn from your fellow citizens to rate these tokens yourselves. The Bankless Token Hub is launching right now and has already been beta tested by your fellow Bankless citizens. So stay tuned in the Bankless Discord for up Updates. And if you're not a Bankless citizen, well, you better sign up if you want access because this corner of Bankless is available for citizens only. I'll see you in the Discord. David, we have Bank Failure Season 2, the second biggest bank failure ever in U.S. history, just happened this week. And I feel like people are barely talking about it. Yeah. They're kind of talking about it. This is a First Republic Bank based in San Francisco, California. Pretty big. $200 billion plus in assets. So this was a big one. David, what happened? 
Well, I'll think I'll throw the question to you, Ryan. What happened that was different than any of the other banks? So uh, banks bought a, long, a lot of long-term dated securities, and then the Fed jacked up the interest rates, and then the bank, this bank failed, just like the other ones. This one was different in that it got a $30 billion injection from JP Morgan and a number of other too-big-to-fail banks, and then that depleted. That also ran out because customers chose to withdraw. Uh, and then eventually the FDIC said, like, man, this bank's not going to make it. We're going to throw the white flag on behalf of yeah, that, First Republic. That, I mean, that that's was basically my, what that happened. my interpretation of events. So regulators took possession of First Republic on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the biggest bank failure since 2008, uh, the second biggest in U.S. history, when there was a bank called Washington Mutual that exploded in the 2008 crisis. That was um, my first ha- bank ever as a child. That was my first really? checking account. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. Your first was Washington Mutual? Is that based in like uh, the Seattle area? Yeah. Uh-huh. Washington uh-huh. State? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it no longer exists. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what happened to them. I'm sure they become became part of a, a, a bigger bank here. Um, but y- yeah, I think... that account? <laughs> it's still there. You still got it, Dan. <laughs> I, I think this has a lot of similarities with the first bank failures that we saw, in, yeah. including Silicon Valley Bank. The difference here is, you know how Silicon Valley Bank, their their big kind of uh, in, you know uh, debt was in startups, various yeah. Silicon Valley startups. Well, for First Republic, they were in the jumbo mortgage business. So, oh, you know, not big crypto? mansions, not crypto, big That's houses. That's not what Gary Gensler said. It's another asset. Well, he he yes, he he he'll probably blame this one on crypto too, David. Don't don't yeah, you worry. Sure Give him some time. All right, have faith in Gensler. Uh, jumbo mortgages were their shtick. Okay, and so when rates were low, of course they gave out a ton of these loans, mm. and you know as one does. And then the Fed raised rates. The value of the mortgages, the collateral went down, of course. But then also, yeah, the uh, the, the treasuries on the balance sheet also went down in value too, under par value, thus making the bank insolvent. So for me, it reminds me a lot of Silicon Valley Bank. So all the lessons that we learned a couple of weeks ago have come into play here, except the asset class wasn't Silicon Valley tech companies. It was jumbo mortgages. Well, also, it also wasn't trouble. United States treasuries. And so I think this is probably like where the fear kind of strikes. Two, two reasons. One, we have another bank crisis, bank failure, excuse me, not, I guess a single bank failure isn't a crisis, but like, all of the other banks that failed happened those numbers of weeks ago in that like pocket of time. It's all related. Now we have this bank fa- failing for the same reasons, different asset class. So mortgages, they, they not did, they did have They did have some treasuries on the balance sheet, so that didn't help. But yes, go on. I think the point is this is like the balance sheet doesn't matter what the balance sheet is. doesn't matter what the asset class is. The issue was that the, the Fed raised interest rates too fast. So it doesn't matter, like, was it United States Treasuries or just, like, long-dated securities or whatnot? Yeah. Like, all banks are getting distressed by the whiplash of the uh, rising interest rates. Particularly? And also the, the timing, like, how long, were the, how long ago were the other banking crises? Like, six weeks ago, right? Yeah. And so six weeks later, we have another big banking crisis. It would have been made, it would, I would have felt better. It would be easier to be comfy if all of the banks collapsed in the same time frame. But now <laughs> and then it was we over. Have ones, and then it was over. But yeah. now we have one that's six weeks later. And so the question is to me that I have is like, okay, clearly the common denominator is not the asset class. This is not con- this contagion is not contained to a specific. No, it's not type. just crypto. It's not, not just, just crypto. Silicon Valley tech companies for sure. This is something different. 
this is, and that's the big common denominator is the whiplash behind the rising interest rates, which affects all banks. And now six weeks later from the crisis, we have another bank that fails, which begs the question, how do you know when it's over? And are is are there more shoes to drop? Are there yeah, more banks I mean, to fail? So this and are is are we at an, the beginning of this thing? Another pattern here for you is another mid-sized bank, basically. It's not one right. of the two big to fail banks here, right? It's right. another Silicon Valley um, bank sized bank that just uh, went belly up. And um, yeah, so in the common denominator, as you said, is rising interest rates. So here's here's what happened. The bank failed effectively, the FDIC stepped in, uh, that happened on Monday. And then what they do is they auction off all of the assets. So all the people's savings account in uh, First Republic, somebody's got to bank them still, right? The FDIC is not going to uh, just say, sorry, your money's gone, right? Of course, shareholders get wiped out in these sorts of situations. So that means a bigger bank has to go buy the assets, mm -hmm. buy First Republic, so it can still say functional and operational. That bigger bank happened to be our friends over at J.P. Morgan, mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon and company. Uh, there was an auction. Uh, J.P. Morgan won the auction against two other bidders. Those other bidders were also very large banks. And so J.P. Morgan ended up with the $92 billion in deposits, which includes $30 billion that it and the other large banks put into First Republic to try to prop them up previously, as you mentioned. Right and 137 billion in loans and 30 billion in securities, okay? So that's what they took over. So the bigger bank just got even bigger, and then the FDIC absorbed the losses on the mortgages and the commercial loans, and it also provided a $50 billion credit line. So it's gonna cost the FDIC deposit insurance fund about $13 billion. SVB costs 20 billion for comparison. These losses, David, what happens to them? Oh, the FDIC just takes care of them. They were socialized. We taxpayers. Right. We, like it cost us, and so these risky investments and um, the interest rate rise is ultimately costing taxpayers. So that that is the cost. We were talking about like earlier, of um, you know, Jerome Powell is hopefully like cradling these banks down as they die. Well, there is a cost to this, and and the cost is J.P. Morgan gets bigger. JP Morgan, mm -hmm. David, now has 10% of all American deposits, all right? Under federal regulation, it actually can't rise anymore. They made an exception for JP Morgan right. to actually make this acquisition. So the banks just get even bigger. The too big to fail banks get bigger. And then also these losses are socialized, right? It's like the average taxpayer wasn't responsible for that loan for a jumbo mortgage. I mean, this just... This is reminiscent of 2008 all over again. And you also can't say, um, Wait, before, I don't think Congress- Before you move on. So I, I heard a, a slightly different story. So I want to throw in what I think could be a correction here. Um, taxpayers are not, it's not going to the taxpayers. It's going to, because of the FDIC deposit insurance fund, that comes from banks. Banks pay for that. So that comes from bank money to fill up the deposit insurance fund. So that's coming out of that. But- where does the banks get the money to pay for the insurance fund? Like fees on customers and in the economy. And so while taxpayers aren't being charged directly, it ultimately goes back to the consumer because banks are going to have to charge higher rates for all their products and services down the line. That was the, the take that I heard. Um, and then the other thing that I, the, the take that I heard is like, you, they, you said that they made an exception so that JP Morgan could buy this bank. Um, that was not an exception made 
right now, that was an exception already made in Dodd-Frank forever ago, where big banks that are so large above a certain threshold can't get bigger by buying banks unless that bank is failing. And so this was an exception built into Dodd-Frank forever ago. That that was, these are my interpretations of, of or what I've heard. Yeah, I think you're right, David. Those are definitely worthwhile details to, to clarify. So the banks got bigger. Um, you, the losses were socialized in the form of higher you know, bank fees, right. you know, taxpayers ultimately, ultimately paid, paid yes, yeah. ultimately get paid by, by the people. I also think that it's becoming less defensive. It's, I haven't heard anyone in Congress, anyone in the U.S. government, blame a particular party for this one, right? Mm-hmm. Very easy to blame kind of the, the crypto bros first, and then more widely kind of the tech bros, Silicon Valley people for the second. But when you have this pattern of, of mid-sized banks failing, right? And like, who are you going to blame now? This is starting to look systemic, guys. Starting to look yeah. like a problem. And I want to pull up this chart. I think this was the graphic of the week. Did you see this, David? Yeah. Whew. Describe what we're looking at. This is a timeline. I'll, I'll start by describing. This is a timeline from 2002 all the way to 2023. Mm-hmm. And we see on this timeline a, a series of, of circles, series of what look like mm-hmm. dots. And the size of the circle represents uh, the number of assets in the bank that failed. So for mm-hmm. every bank failure, there's a circle. And the really big banks get bigger circles. And so, David, describe what we see uh, in bank failures around the 2008 to 2012 time range. What are we looking at? Yeah, so we talked about how the First Republic Bank is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Well, the first largest is the big blue, the, the, the big circle that is for, in the 2008 uh, housing crisis, Washington Mutual Bank, $307 billion. And then you see like... How would you describe it? Just like dots and, and stacked snowballs all sna- the way up, like a, a so mount- big big circle, and then yeah. a mountain of tiny little snowballs that you actually can't. Only, there's like mountain. there's like three hundred dots in there of various yeah. sizes, but they're all small, and only three of these dots I can actually re- that actually have the names of the banks in them. So Indie Mac Bank, Colonial Bank, Guarantee Bank, all the other ones are just dots because they're too small to actually fit the names of the banks into. So that's These are all bank failures. All bank, bank failures. failures the, so what happened to these dots? Crisis. What happened to these dots, David? Om nom 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 nom. <laughs> Is that yes. a technical term? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they got gobbled up by the bigger banks. Yeah. Right? And so fast forward to where we are today, 2003, there are only three big dots. First Real Republic bank, bank at $229 billion, Silicon Valley Bank at $2009 billion, and Signature Bank at $110 billion. Which goes back to my question. This is just season two of the Bank Crisis TV show. How many seasons are there? Is the right side of this timeline, which we are about to go into in the 2023-2024, going to be similar to what we see on the left, but with bigger dots? Right. And look how big these dots are already. There's a lot more money out there in banks and... Right, like, is there like three hundred dots in two thousand eight? We got three dots. <laughs> yeah, picture. If you, I, we're trying to describe this, the best way is just to go to YouTube and get the visual. Yes. Okay, podcast listeners. So sometimes you just got to capitulate and, and look yeah. at the video here to get to get the graphic. But what we're looking at is a mountain of snowballs in in two thousand eight mm-hmm. versus a snowman in two thousand twenty three. Right, right. We just got big circles and it. Slightly smaller circle and then kind of a head circle. That's what that's what we're looking at. And this represents, David, what looks like the second, third, 
and fourth largest bank failure in U.S. history. In very and it quick all succession. happened this year. Yeah. It's pretty big. Like, <laughs> this doesn't look good. This doesn't look healthy. And yeah, yeah. to your question is, what happens next? Uh, David, do you want to hear Arthur Hayes' take? It's hit me with it. All right. So here's Arthur Hayes. Uh, <laughs> of all of the season one banking crisis conversations we had Mm -hmm. the arthur hayes conversation sticks out the most in my mind Mm -hmm. and i think is maybe the most predictive of what we're seeing start to happen and if you recall david from that conversation in fact you were on it i wasn't i just listened to it a couple times after that episode he basically predicted (laughs) okay i i will remind you i will uh pod explain it to you david um it's like he said that the midsize and small banks were in real trouble in the Mm -hmm. u.s that they're basically mm-hmm. insolvent, but slow motion type insolvent. So he wasn't predicting that Bitcoin would go to a million in 90 days and you know massive bank crisis. He said like it could take a year or two and the Fed would have to basically step in and do something absolutely massive that would result in a whole bunch of money printing, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of money printing. So here's his take after the FRC, the First Republic collapse. A longer essay coming soon on my take. This JP Morgan First Republic uh, deal means the US regulators decided to nationalize the banking system. Nationalize the banking system. He goes on, the eight too big to fail banks are effectively nationalized because they have government guarantee on their entire deposit base. They will not be allowed to fail regardless of decisions they make. Socialized losses, privatized gains, it's a great deal, but When called upon, the eight too-big-to-fail banks must absorb their shitty cousins who couldn't handle the rough-and-tumble free market. The prodigal prodigal children's equity holders will get a zero first, but the depositors will find a new home in a safe, too-big-to-fail bank. That bank, of course, is JP Morgan in this case. The government will provide rule exemptions and mates rates on loans, like how the OCC waived deposit concentration limits and FDIC loaned $50 billion to JP Morgan to get them to do the deal. But a deal will get done. The whole point is for the federal government to claim it isn't bailing out a failed bank, but a private company is. It's a bit of left hand, right hand, but those are the policies of the day. Just look at how China allocates losses as a blueprint for the U.S. As long as inflation remains high and the politics surrounding banking credit and debit are toxic, there will be more contorted solutions to try to confuse you as to who bears the loss. If you aren't one of the eight too big to fail banks, you are effed. As long as inflation is sticky at these high levels and possibly rising. Today, I will choose a bank with large CRE exposure and 50% to 50% OTM puts that expire before June. This is Arthur, of course, being the trader and betting against uh, small and mid-sized banks. What do you think of this idea? Nationalizing, we are de facto nationalizing the U.S. banking system. Well, it reminds me of the uh, article that um, he wrote, which brought him onto the podcast last time, which the whole theme of that article is... um, the destination is known, but the route is uncertain. He was actually applying it in a different uh, way, but I'll apply it here. The destination is a nationalized financial system uh, because that is that is the era that we live in, the era of the CBDC. It becomes really easy to roll out a CBDC when there's only eight banks in the commercial banking sector. And so like that is the conclusion of things. A financial system that is just highly centralized controlled with a ton of oversight and a ton of regulation because it's not hard to control things when there's only eight banks. And so this is to me a convergence upon 
the, we, we talk about CBDCs and like the evils of CBDCs because it just means central control. Yeah. So this is the conversions that we're going towards. Here's the insidious thing about this too. is like you heard him talk about like these contorted measures that were being made. They're not going to announce that the, the mm-hmm. U.S. banking system is being nationalized. No, right. There's never going to be legislation that goes in front of Congress, which is like, check yes or no. Let's do a vote. Should the U.S. banking system be nationalized or not? It'll happen like this slowly. And with them doing the, the theater of basically, we're not nationalizing it. It's private. See, JP Morgan, look, a private company went and won the bid, right? So it'll, it'll happen. Like no one will directly tell you that that is what is actually happening. As, as an investor and as a participant in this economy, you just have to keep your eyes open and connect the right. dots and right. see the pattern playing out. And right. you're right. I think that is the destination of this. This don't expect the trumpet from Jerome Powell saying, we are nationalizing the banking system because they know that that uh, would be soundly rejected by the American people. Well, the, the way that you're saying is that is that like they are the puppeteers of this master plan and they, they want that. I'm not necessarily sure that they do want that. It is if you zoom out and see nation state and fiat currency systems as the powers that be and with a mind of its own, that is a conclusion because the aggregate incentives pushes it there. Oh yeah. But like the I, individual players like Jerome Powell's like, I'm going to nationalize the banking sector. I don't, he's not doing that. He's no, just no, no, one no. cell I, in a larger body with a direction that it wants to go in. I agree with that too. I don't think that there's like an intent to like, I'm an evil right. emperor to nationalize this system, but there is an intent not to tell you that that is the That's game being played. hundred percent true. That, that is, is exactly intentful. right. They're not right. going, like they know what they're doing. They know they know where this inevitably goes they're not stupid is kind of what i'm saying they're not like Mm -hmm. oops i guess we have to take over another bank what's going to happen they know exactly where this is leading but they're not going to tell you that this is where it's leading they're going to boil the frog and which is exactly what's happening so meanwhile speaking of this bology all right do you remember the 90 day bitcoin bet yeah, he's capitulated on it yeah uh so six weeks it was due uh june 17th he bet that Bitcoin would hit a million dollars. There'd be a cascade of bank failures. What is the status update on that, David? Balaji tweets out, I just burned a million to tell you they're printing trillions. He really loves his like limericks. He loves <laughs> he's like, good. little like, he's good at r- it. Yeah, rhyming yeah. little like quips. <laughs> um, the million dollar bet is now closed by mutual agreement. I made one million dollar improvable on-chain donations, which you can verify. Half a million to Bitcoin core development, half a million to give directly, half a million to Medlock, who I think is the winner of the bet. Uh, and then he goes on to explain, like, why did he do this? He's basically saying the whole, like, bit signal was a marketing stunt that he has paid. He just took $1 million to the face to broadcast that they are going to print a trillion dollars. Um, so that's what, he's, that's what he said. Did you watch his video, David? I watched part of it. Okay, I, I, I watched it. It was good. It was a lot of our, our episode with him. Yeah, kind it was of, a, uh, recut, It actually recast. made me a little bit frustrated. I was like, apology. Like, you can say things in nine minutes. Next time <laughs> we do a podcast, can you do something like this, please? I don't know. I enjoy the long form with apology. Although, although I think we had like uh, two and a half hours of content. And we kind of pared that down to like, yeah. you know, under two hours yeah, or something. Uh, but An hour 40, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I, I, I think the TLDR for people, we'll include a link in the show notes, is um, apology says it's still going to happen. It's just yeah. not going to happen in 90 days. Right. And he gave the parallels to this is like 2008. Uh, he said Bernanke said it was fine. Uh, to, 
that the economy is fine. And then two quarters later, we got hit with 2008 major recession. And right. so he draws parallels to that. He also draws parallels By to the way, COVID. All of the federal like chair members and everyone else is like, the economy is totally sound. Banking system's fine, guys. Like that same was the thing. messaging this week. Yeah, he's he basically pulled up press releases in the same time right. period, and there, he's like, "Look what Bernanke said. We're fine." I, you know, didn't use the exact same terms as as um, you know, uh, kind of the landing the plane term that that Powell uses, but basically said, "We're fine. Mild, res- no recession. It'll be fine." It's and chill, then guys. We two got quarters this. later, didn't happen. So he he's basically saying, "Look at the signals. We got debt." at astronomical um, levels. We've got de-dollarization happening. He's got some charts about that. We've got gold buying from central banks at all-time highs outside of the U.S. particular. And now we have bank failures and runs. And so he, he's basically saying, I lost the bet, but I still got the word out on right. the most important thing. That's kind of his take on it. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because yeah. he didn't exactly tell us in that conversation. We asked him if this was sort of just a marketing stunt. He said, no, it wasn't. So I so, remember I remember thinking about that part because uh, he I can't remember the details, but I think there he might have been saying I am not doing this to pump the Bitcoin price to make a profit, which I is think different so. than saying I am doing this as a marketing stunt. I also think he still views that um, there is a probability that it could happen in ninety days. And when we had that conversation with him, he was like, "Yeah, there's a probability that could happen. It's not a certainty. Right. All of this is like." probabilistic. And sure. actually, um, this is, I think, worth watching. I think we should watch this clip because the question is, okay, Balaji, if you still think it's going to happen and it, it's not happening in 90 days now, and you're willing to capitulate on that, when is it going to happen? So this is what he says here. And so then, of course, the question is, okay, but when? Everybody wants to know exactly when things are going to happen. So I don't have a crystal ball. Um, my guess is 10% months, uh, 70% years, 19% decades, 1% centuries, okay? Uh, I can give a case for each of those, that when I say 10% months, what I'm saying is, you know, we have some serious crisis in, in months, or 70% I think it happens in years. And one way of thinking about this is sort of the, you know, stay in dollars or exit spectrum. If you think the current status quo of printing can go on for an endless amount of time, the US establishment de facto believes it can go on for centuries, then you stick on one side. If you are seeing fire alarms, you're seeing klaxons, then you exit, whatever that means to you. Personally, as I said, I'm like 10% months, 70% years, 90% decades, 1% centuries. You should figure out what your own percentages are. If you think that all of this is totally stupid, you know, and uh, and the U.S. of course has infinite hit points and the Fed can print forever, then you're at centuries and you should ignore all of this. But if you have some probability that actually system collapse may happen sooner than people think, then you should, you know, take take appropriate action. Wherever. What do you think of that, David? So he's giving a much more probabilistic bet here, right? And this kind of implies, you know, for him, if it's 10% months, maybe he has 10% in fiat, for example, 10% right. in the do- in the dollar. And that's right. how he allocates his, uh, his portfolio. Sure. Uh, I'm reminded that there's that quote that sometimes there are decades when weeks happen, and then sometimes there are weeks when decades happen. And I'm also reminded that Balaji was way ahead of the curve with COVID, which was an exponential event. 2008 was an exponential event. The worry that we had with the, with the snowman and what could happen in the future, like what we're saying is like, there could be an exponential event in the future. So it's not like, it's not like if Bitcoin goes to a million, it's not gonna be like at the last second it touches a million and it just gets there and then it comes back down. 
it's going to be like, no, it, like, it skyrockets and it breaks the meter because of an exponential event. Um, 10% is exactly like what he said, is an exponential event. It's a 10% chance. Like, we live in a, a time of chaos. Uh, the pendulum of the global order is no longer in the, time, in the era of stability. That was the last four decades. It's been shifting towards chaos and it's been shifting that way for a long time now um yeah yeah this when you break it down here, here here's what you can do you can um what i love about this sort of thing is you can actually bet whether right. biology is right or not and you don't it doesn't have to be a binary all or nothing type of right. thing you have to be like oh it's it's certain so and it's certain it's going to happen in the next six months therefore mm -hmm. i'm going to take all of my fiat i'm going to convert it to crypto right mm -hmm. you could you could just do a little bit of it or a lot of it depending on where you are in kind of the spectrum. But I will say, I, I do, over the long run, I will not, I'm definitely not betting that Bology is, is wrong oh, over like the God long no. time period. It's God like, no. this seems totally reasonable to me that 10% probably happens in months, 70% years. 10% in months sounds like 10% in 2023. There's a 10% chance that Bitcoin hits $1 million this year. But, we, and we know, David, that it's 100% probability that fiat is going to like, trend towards zero over a right. long enough time span right. that's every single fiat system like go right. chart it over time ray dalio right. does this wonderfully right. right it's like all of them hit a reset mark and right. we're like what 50 years into this experiment with uh you know the, the 1970s dollar, yeah. and the us dollar so it's gonna happen at some right. point it's just a matter of when and i don't yeah. think people fully understand that and bology does so i'm glad he's getting that message out did you, I don't know if we have it in the agenda, but do you, the conversation of the $1 trillion coin is back on the menu. Did you see oh, that? Oh, yes. I, yes. I saw some of this. Yeah. This yeah, is, um, we, we got some takes later in the show, but yeah. So the, the, the establishment has resurfaced the possibility of minting a $1 trillion coin. What does that tell you? I mean, I'm sure that was a snippet in Balaji's uh, video too. Yeah. I think he's yeah. brought that up actually. Uh -huh. Um, well, that's that bank failures, Balaji capitulating on his bet, but not really. He still thinks mm -hmm. he's going to be right in the long term. David, we'll talk about Coinbase for a minute. They are going international. What does that mean? The Coinbase International Exchange has launched. This is up and running, uh, offering Bitcoin and Ether perpetual futures settled in USDC with up to 5x leverage to institutional clients and people in eligible jurisdictions outside of the US. So Coinbase enters the international game. Uh, just at a high level, Ryan, like, what do you think about this? What's your take? I think they're not putting their eggs in the U.S. basket anymore, not, at least no, not all of them. Yeah. It's a smart. And the other thing I think is like, wow, I'm an American. And uh, if you're in the U.S., if you're American listening to this episode, you don't have access to these products because your government won't let you. Yeah. you. You live in a financial prison that will not allow you. To, it doesn't think that you are able to handle Coinbase, yeah, Bitcoin, and perpetuals. Boy. Yeah. And no, that kind of sucks. You can't play with big boy toys. So this is like, this is not an unregulated um, marketplace that they're running. This is, um, you know, in the EU, uh, they can, they can offer this sort of thing. And so, but, and they can't do that in America. It's sad. I think my take on this is this is really bullish for Coinbase because <laughs> we know that they're like the FTX US versus FTX back before we thought it was, knew it was a fraud FTX, uh, international dominated in spot revenue and perps revenue just like it was just a gargantuan so someone's got to step US. in basically 
Yeah, there's a huge void in the market. And so yeah. like it's bullish for Coinbase because Coinbase gets to step into that market and service that demand that we know is verifiably there. And of all the other uh, offshore derivative exchanges that has ever that have all come and gone in the world of crypto, this is the first time that we have seen a meaningful, entrenched, established player that people trust that operates by the rules and operates in the in the light, not in the shadows. And so it's bullish for Coinbase. I also think it's bullish for this industry because finally we have a legitimate player to fill that void and we have a legitimate player answering towards that demand. And so it's bullish for two reasons. Yeah, it's, at some level, the uh, the crypto exchange game is very much about just outlasting everyone else. Yeah. I mean, I throw Kraken in this category too of like mm-hmm. just over a decade of servicing crypto and just not necessarily being fastest, right. but just being the most secure, most stable, right. most predictable like doing the core things really well. And yeah. at the end of the day, the FTX is, they burn out. I mean, yeah. like being, being fast is a huge liability in this industry. Look at the so. capital. Yeah. I the, think the so. The low and slow game uh, plays out real well in crypto. Yeah. A tortoise, not hair. Um, yeah. David, there's an entire episode about this with Tom Duff Gordon, who's the VP of international policy that we put out. You guys will catch that on the feed. We'll include a link in the show notes as well. Also, some more news from Coinbase. Uh, do you remember they uh, they picked a fight with Gary Gensler? They they, mm-hmm. they they're bringing the SEC to court. What's this tweet say, David? Here's an update on that. Yeah, so they got a response from the court. So the Third Circuit Court just issued a text-only order directing the SEC to file a response to our mandamus petition. I hate legal talk. Within <laughs> ten days. <laughs> Is that how do you pronounce it? And what does that mean? Do you know? I, no, I don't. Mandamus. Let's go with Man, that. Anyway, <laughs> someone can, someone, the lawyer can TLDR, practice. the SEC has to respond to Coinbase's petition that they filed last July in 2022 in the next 10 days because Coinbase said they were going to take the, the SEC to court if they didn't. Uh, and so, at the direction of the court, the respondent is ordered to file any answer to the petition within 10 days of the date of this order. Um, Cool. So Gary, you got nine days Gary, from the time of reco- out. <laughs> from, from the time that this episode releases. If you're hearing yeah. us, you got nine days to reply to this. Uh, all right, David, what do we have coming up next? A bunch of stuff, Ryan. We got Venmo bringing crypto wallets to 60 million Americans. We got Eigenlayer Stage One mainnet set to launch. We got the Sui mainnet. Again, pull out the number of the market cap that you think that it is. We got an Axelar announcement, and then also the newest Zach XBT victim just dropped. So all of that and more. But first, a moment to talk about some of our fantastic sponsors that make the show possible, especially MetaMask, who not only makes the show possible, but also makes Web3 jargon easy to comprehend. So if there's ever a word that Ryan or I use that is a crypto word that is confusing to you, MetaMask has built MetaMask Learn at learn.metamask.io, which is a place to get onboarded into the world of Web3, not just for you, bankless listener, but you builder of a crypto company that needs to onboard your new employees to get them to understand what your other employees are talking about, also send them here. Let's go here for MetaMask. Learning about crypto is hard. Until now, introducing MetaMask Learn, an open educational platform about crypto, 
Web3, self-custody, wallet management, and all the other topics needed to onboard people into this crazy world of crypto. MetaMask Learn is an interactive platform with each lesson offering a simulation for the task at hand, giving you actual practical experience for navigating Web3. The purpose of MetaMask Learn is to teach people the basics of self-custody and wallet security in a safe environment. And while MetaMask Learn always takes the time to define Web3 specific vocabulary, it is still a jargon-free experience for the crypto curious user. Friendly, not scary. MetaMask Learn is available in 10 languages with more to be added soon, and it's meant to cater to a global Web3 audience. So are you tired of having to explain crypto concepts to your friends? Go to learn.metamask.io and add MetaMask Learn to your guides to get onboarded into the world of Web3. Arbitrum 1 is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum 1 and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. David, this is absolutely huge. No one's talking about it. Venmo is bringing crypto wallets, the gateway to crypto wallets anyway, to 20 million Americans. Do you want to hear the uh, Ryan Sean Adams hype tweet about this before we uh, get into what happened? Straight into my veins, sir. All right, let's go. Okay, Venmo is now allowing its 60 million customers to withdraw directly to a non-custodial crypto wallet, exit the banks, and go bankless. FinTech has become a gateway to crypto. Crypto is quietly eating the world. Just no one is noticing because it's a bear market. That's the take here. There's a lot of words in that tweet that I like, man. <laughs> well, tell us what really happened. Ground us in reality. What's what's going on with uh, with Venmo when we get past the hype tweets here? Introducing crypto transfers for Venmo customers. What does that mean? The big news here is that Venmo is no longer just a place to buy crypto assets, but you can now make ledger updates to these crypto assets because mm. these things are money and you need to make ledger updates to money because that's how money work. Uh, so you can send your crypto to other Venmo users inside of the Venmo ledger, the Venmo centralized database ledger, but you side can chain. also- Side Call chain. Side chain maybe. But you can also make a decentralized open permissionless blockchain ledger update by sending your crypto assets to another wallet. This is just basically Venmo doing payments, so which isn't any surprise. But it's a very big company with 60 million users making on-chain ledger updates of Ether transfers and stablecoin transfers in using our blockchain payment rails. Uh, yeah. And so this is all rolling out to customers May of 2023. I know it's like it's a small deal because yes, we can we can now transfer crypto. We've all we've already been transferring crypto, but now Venmo, 60 million people are able to transfer crypto using Venmo. So big. I think it's the big thing here is to non-custodial wallets. That's the exit, right? Like this is like DeFi mullet thesis playing out, which is basically Mm -hmm. like fintech provides a user interface for crypto, which is more difficult, but it's all built on top of those ledgers, the decentralized ledger of um, Ethereum, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. And now we can hold our own private keys. So Mm -hmm. our job, I think, as a crypto community is to get those 60 million people into 
bankless wallets. That's yeah. what we got to go do next. We got to go before, do that before hard they work. shut the gates. <laughs> before they shut the gates, before they stop yeah. letting us. <laughs> David, we got mainnet season here. Who's going to mainnet this week? Coming up first in mainnet season, we got Eigenlayer. So Eigenlayer has been extremely hyped. This is the topic of restaking. Eigenlayer really opened up the door to the concept of restaking. And so they are launching their mainnet stage one, stage one mainnet uh, soon, soon TM. They said they've got over 9,000 submissions in, with interest between 0.1 ETH and 30,000 ETH to all begin doing restaking things, to restake for other networks. Uh, and so what does restaking mean for include, people, right? I'm so glad you asked, Ryan. Restaking is when you stake your ETH to Ethereum and then you stake it again. <laughs> Double do stake? Any, do you have further questions? <laughs> okay, so does that mean I get like I could stake it twice in Ethereum or am I staking no, it somewhere yeah, else? Okay. So, what does that mean? So restaking, are you familiar with merge mining? I know some listeners aren't, so I'll answer the question anyways. Merge mining is when you have an, an ASIC, like a Bitcoin ASIC, and you use your ASIC to mine Bitcoins, but you could also mine another network at the same time that operates on the same hashing algorithm. So if you're, if you're mining for Bitcoin, but you're just doing a SHA-256 mining algorithm, you can also simultaneously mine for another chain because it uses the same hashing algorithm. Restaking mm -hmm. is the same concept for Ethereum proof of stake. So you for a token. For a token, Ether. exactly. Ether. Ether. Exactly. So you stake your Ether to Ethereum, but then instead of also when you stake your Ether to Ethereum, you are signing up for slashing conditions. If you propose an invalid block, you get slashed. If you missed your block slot, you get marginally penalized. There are certain slashing conditions that come with the responsibility of being an Ether holder, an Ether staker, and restaking lets you sign up for new slashing conditions for new networks, completely new networks. Another layer two, uh, an Oracle network, literally anything. Uh, and so this is why when I, when I just leave it open-ended and like let you stake it again, it's, apparent, it's an, an intentionally open-ended. You can stake it to any network that needs security just by signing on for new slashing conditions. And I can learn it's like the clear. hub for all of this. You're not just signing up for new slashing conditions because that doesn't sound too fun. You're right. you're signing up for rewards new as rewards. well. Right. You're higher taking, you're taking higher risk rates. and you're getting paid for it. Exactly. And so yeah. the risk is the slashing, but the reward is basically if you have a four point five percent um APR mm -hmm. on Ether staked in that protocol, you can also take that staked ETH and you can use it to secure another protocol. Now you have some risk there, of course, but then you get some reward right. for that. So this is really cool. This is like Ether as an internet bond. I think we're going to do entire episodes on this concept of restaking the future because mm -hmm. it is that big for ETH as a, a monetary unit and also for like the entirety of, of cryptocurrency. I mean, it's going to shake everything up if this is successful, I think. Yeah. And if bankless listeners' minds are boggled and you have further questions, I have great news for you. An article that I wrote went out on the bankless newsletter Thursday, yesterday, at the time of, of listening, which are kind of the theme is like the big questions that restaking brings to the table, that Eigenlayer brings to the table. And so I explain restaking in further detail and I, get, I go through what I'm calling the restaking meta. This is a, this is a big deal, by the way. I would, like to, I would like to it's plant my flag big. and say this is a significant deal in the, in the same yes. way that like, once upon a time, we had these arbitrage bots, and then one of these arbitrage bots did something weird by like reordering transactions when they were proposing oh, a MEV. block, and yeah. then we discovered the world of MEV, and like our yeah. minds were blown, and it's like, like the entire industry shifted. This is like restaking, and so the whole like 
All right, Justin Drake, Dankrad, Vitalik are all talking about how does restaking change the natural equilibrium of the staking industry because we don't know the answer to that yeah, question. That, MEV is a good analogy here because there's some good things about it, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it increases you know yield and rates and all sorts of things, but there's also some scary things about it right. in, the, in the way that could shake things up and change uh, protocol incentives. So we're doing episodes on this too, right? right? In the future, so we have uh, an episode for you. But but that was just the first of a couple of main nets. What's this one, David? Sui, the Sui network. Uh, I think the uh, the sister network to Aptos. I think these are like coming around the same time. Uh, the newest, shiniest layer one blockchain on on main nets. Uh, so they are boasting a whopping number of 100 globally distributed validators to achieve a peak throughput of 300,000 transactions per second with finality inside of That's a lot 480 of milliseconds. So these are the numbers, mm. the super speedy layer one. Um, I have not looked under the hood of this thing, but I'm going to classify this as what I would call a juice layer one. Um, Ryan, have you come up with your number? I already knew the number, okay. so it's not fair, not fair for me for to actually say what that number is. But I will say it surprised me when I first learned what the number was. The market cap of fully diluted valuation of Sui is coming in at $13 billion. $13 billion. Wow. Just launched to mainnet. So went from Series A, Series B, launched to mainnet, coming in at $13 billion, making it the number 66 crypto asset. It's got a market cap of $700 million. And I would like to point out the discrepancy between the market cap and the fully diluted valuation. I will also say that some layer twos have this discrepancy as well. Um, $13 billion is a fully diluted valuation. $700 million is the market cap. That means there are $12.3 billion of tokens locked up that have not been issued to the network that has to be absorbed by sufficient buying pressure to justify a $13 million valuation. Because the way like Sui and CoinGecko um, values market cap is based on the circulating supply, which is very low right now. Right. 5%, I mean, this is, is right? a normal thing at the beginning of all networks, but it is also a symptom of a VC chain. Um, interestingly- It's something you have to watch out for because right. when you're buying a Su- like a Sui token, you're actually, I think you're totally- I always value these things as the fully diluted valuation because this is a long term what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Series B, uh, Ryan, do you know who led the Sui, 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 Series B? Uh, Polychain, Multicoin, one of the big layer two investors. You know, you know the names. Am I right? No. Uh, FTX Ventures, um, which, oh. <laughs> which they were forced to sell their stake for $96 million recently. Which was okay. probably a fumble because if I don't know how they valued it, um, they sold, they made, they had to liquidate for ninety six million dollars. I don't know what the valuation is, but like the Series B valuation was two billion dollars, and we are currently at a six point five x of that. Uh, and so I don't know if that was a fumble or not, but um, I'm assuming they sold it somewhere between two billion dollars and thirteen billion dollars, but not thirteen billion dollars. I guess they didn't want to speculate, huh? Uh, yes. All right, so we got and some I, more and releases. I will just say though. that the tone that I just gave about Sui was totally biased and definitely negative, and I'm totally aware of that, and that's my deal. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, your deal is being biased and negative? Yeah, towards centralized new layer ones. Totally. Yeah. Why? Because they have to prove themselves or because you hate yeah. them or because you're, you're, you're yeah. bag biased and you're angry that you didn't uh, get on this, on this deal? Why, why are you... 
Why is your tone negative? Uh, because I believe in constrained layer ones that are not led by VCs. We've played, we've done this before. We've done this we? before. We've seen this Many game. Times. We already know how this works. <laughs> Many times. You definitely have to prove yourself. That's a hefty valuation mm -hmm. for just shipping to for, mainnet for an, on a new for, layer. For an empty ghost chain. Yeah. Hefty there's, there's a valuation. lot of growth priced in there. All right. Um, Axelar, what's what's up with them? Going to mainnet too. That's number three. Yeah. So Axelar is a network. It's a IBC Cosmos network that connects Cosmos to Arbitrum. So it's a bridge protocol, which previously Bankless has been like dubious about, and I'm, I'm still not totally sold, but something's new about Axelar, we did a show with them, which is why I know about this. Um, they have this thing called GMP, General Messaging Protocol. So instead of, Ryan, instead of sending tokens cross-chain, they send computation cross-chain. So the tokens hmm. stay on the respective chains, but the logic passes through chains. So there's well, less that seems risk. totally. Yeah, that I I don't have a problem with that. Right. The, the the challenge with um, bridges is kind of like the security risk Token you security, expose yourself yeah. to. Yeah, Token security risk, and you're saying it's not you know it's not taking that type of risk. It can take that type of risk, but wow. it does the correct, in my opinion, the correct order of operations, which is it passes data, which is less valuable, and then once you build a secure messaging protocol and you go to mainnet with that and you and that's what you ship for production and let that be battle tested in the wild, you can then layer tokens on top of that. Mm. And like this was like the breakthrough that I had. It's like, wait a second. Why did all the other cross-chain bridges not do that? Why did they just skip <laughs> to the tokens? Uh, so there was a, there was a bank. What, wait, what kind of data? Like what kind of data is it? Okay, What's so the, part of this, this announcement is this thing called Sommelier, which Zachy Mannion from the Cosmos ecosystem, we've had him on Bankless. Right. That's his project. Right. Sommelier is like this cross-chain yearn, if you will, and manages oh, assets across okay. chains, uh, but because of Axelar is able to manage, uh, so this is actually plugged into Arbitrum. So this is an Arbitrum, Axelar, Cosmos um, partnership, collaboration, where Sommelier, Zaki's DeFi app, is able to reach across chains and manage yield and assets across chains. Yeah, manage yield and assets, but not actually transfer them. Transfer them. Yeah. So you're not actually changing the security profile of yes. the assets yes. themselves. Yes, correct. Huh. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. personally, I am. I mean, we know that bridges are going to be necessary. Probably. With all these chains, yeah. we need a lot of bridges. Yeah. I think you're just you're more more in favor of kind of like trustless bridges, like. Probably layer yeah. two style bridges right. rather than having kind of a mesh network of dubious multi-sig bridges Correct. and yeah, things that get spun have... up inside of a bull market inside of fervors that are like our yeah. bridge is totally safe uh, yeah oops <laughs> yeah Hack. No, I'm north korea's got our money of, now oops. i'm a, a big fan of putting logic at risk before putting tokens at risk hey there you go yeah. well, it seems logical david it does um all right and lastly david we've got a main net update this is really cool actually from lens so mm -hmm. they just launched a, a layer three layer three i believe tell us what they launched and then uh, give us the stats mm -hmm. yeah so they renamed the layer three and we weren't able to fit it into last week's roll-ups this layer three is called momoka by lens so stani tweets out seven days later lens has finalized 5.4 thousand transactions for a total cost of 4.4 dollars that's wow that's for all of the transactions so the average transaction on momoka is 0. 0.0008 cents with a peak of 25,000 transactions per second. That is awesome. Yeah. He, he says close to S3 pricing. That is uh, Amazon. 
AWS oh, data storage I pricing. Not, I needed you for that one. <laughs> well, you know what? I think this is awesome. This is basically, remember Lens, of course, is a Web3 social protocol. So Web3 social can be cheap now mm-hmm. because we have broadband. Yeah. That's what's so exciting about this. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about these use cases moving forward now that we have very cheap transactions. Right. And now I will uh, remind bankless listeners. Does that $13 billion Stewie network look all that great to you? <laughs> stop. I, you said you would stop, David. Uh, you said you did would I stop. say I would stop? No, you didn't. No, you said I didn't. that is the new you, actually. Yeah. I said <laughs> Never that's mind. My deal. <laughs> that's David's deal now. So now I feel like I have to compensate by being nicer to the alternative layer ones. I don't think you need just to. Just for do you. That. No, I don't, I don't need to bring need balance to the universe. You don't need to feel compelled to do that. <laughs> How about this? Uh, newest Zach XPT victim. One crypto wallet launched 114 dodgy meme coins in 45 days. David, what's the story here? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's just a business model, I guess, in like spinning up random new meme coins. Uh, Zach says, every time stolen funds from the scam are, sent, are then sent to the same deposit address. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing like some like weird new term uh, comes up uh, and then some this one person makes a token that is that term and then convinces every people to buy it and then makes some profit and then rinses and repeats that. Uh, Zach found them because they were using the same wallet. <laughs> wow, look at that graphic. That is insane. <laughs> I mean, let me just remind you, listener, because mm-hmm. and I'm reminding myself, buying a meme coin is a choice. That's a choice <laughs> that you are making. All right? You that don't one, have to do this. You. <laughs> you don't have to in, invest, quote unquote, in crypto this way. In fact, mm-hmm. like I think you're deluding yourself if you're calling it an investment. Yeah. You take 1%, 2% of your crypto portfolio and you do something like this, totally degen, that's one thing. But like, I think a lot, I, I don't understand why people are <laughs> playing these games, David, when there's active scammers out there just stealing their money. It seems and exhausting. And yet we continue to play them. Yeah. Uh, David, speaking of exhausting, um, the Dame tax, or is that damn tax? I don't know. It feels like a damn tax. The Dame ta- tax, making crypto miners pay for costs they impose on others. This is from the White House. Mm. Biden administration is proposing a 30% tax on crypto proof of work mining. What's your take on this? Uh, negative. Um, because in the same way that I do not think that we should politicize our banking sector, I also think that we should not politicize our public infrastructure, our energy grids. Grids, who should and can access energy, should be not governed by politics. And so my take is that if you are deeming some consumption of energy as some reasons to consume energy as legitimate and others illegitimate, that is bad. And we should not have that involved with our government. Our government should not be able to dictate who can access energy. Energy is real important. And so, yes, it's easy to harp on crypto miners. No one likes crypto miners, except for the crypto industry and not, honestly, not even all the crypto industry. And so it's really easy to go after crypto miners to pay for the cost that they impose on others, quote unquote. But it's also not saying that, hey, anytime you consume electricity for any reason, you are increasing the prices for everyone else because there's only so much electricity to go around and that's how grids work. And so my take on this is this is politicizing our public infrastructure to say that some things are good and some things are bad and that is not the role of government is my take. I think that's a controversial take in, in some places because they'll say, David, are you ignoring the um, energy problem? Are you, are you ignoring climate change? Are you doing that sort of thing? I I think I agree with your take too, 
uh, with one kind of uh, caveat or addendum, I think you were also saying this is when you're saying uh, you don't think we should politicize our energy grid, some people will point out, well, David, it's already politicized. All right. Like we regulate solar and wind farms and dirty coal and all of these things. And my take is it's different when you regulate the supply versus mm -hmm. regulating the demand. Right. The demand part of things is where I think you get into particular trouble. Who is the government to decide how energy should be used based on anything, right? Like that seems to be a slippery slope. Let's say, you know, the Grinch gets elected as president in 2024 and the Grinch just hates Christmas and puts a 40% tax on Christmas lights, right? I mean, like and Bitcoiners make this argument all the time. Um, Christmas lights actually cost more energy to the grid than Bitcoin mining. Right? It's, it's like, and, and so like, um, you get into this slippery slope of creating kind of like politicizing the demand, I right. would say the demand side right. of the energy grid. And that's where I think you get in trouble, right. but that's also a controversial opinion. Cause people say, David, you're, you're, you're ignoring climate change, but I don't, I don't know that you're saying that. I think no. you'd probably be in favor of like no, know, regulating tax, dirty coal plants on the supply the carbon side. Tax the output of energy producers. That's a simple answer there. There you go. Well, that's what's happening. Biden administration, unfriendly to crypto for sure. We got your jobs of the week. Even in a bear market, crypto companies, crypto protocols, everybody's hiring. Got a lot of jobs on the board. Why don't you tell them about the first one? In investment analyst intern. What is this? Oh, I'd be happy to, Ryan. Uh, Bankless Ventures has an investment analyst intern job. Yes, Bankless Ventures. Ryan and I, if you have not heard, are starting a VC firm with our good friend Ben Lakoff. Uh, and we need an intern. Uh, I think this is probably one of the sickest jobs that exists in the crypto world. So if you are interested in interning for BVC, Bankless Ventures, uh, click the link in the show notes go to, or go to bankless.pallet.com slash jobs. And I'll be talking a little bit more about Bankless Ventures uh, and what I am bullish about. Hint, I'm perhaps bullish on Bankless Ventures. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Coinbase needs a staff blockchain engineer as well and a staff smart contract engineer, a software engineer for mobile and a software engineer front end at Phantom. David's dancing now. You know he's excited about Premia, the Web3 product management architect lead role, Denera, smart contract engineer, Uniswap, hiring a ton, backend engineer, product designer, senior mobile engineer. Ooh. We got a whole bunch more over the bankless job boards. It's feeling a little bullish. On the it's job boards right now, talent yeah. is firing. This is a good time to get a job in crypto. Guys, we got a lot coming up. David, why don't you tell them? Coming up, we got the takes from the week. We got some good ones. Eric Voorhees on fire this week. Uh, we also got some questions for the nation. We got three questions from the nation we're going to run through. And then we're going to go to what David and Ryan are excited about. Hold your breath. You'll never guess. But first, I'm going to talk <laughs> about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. You know Uniswap. It's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap. But Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody, 
from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There's a link in the show notes. If you haven't yet experienced the superpowers that a smart contract wallet gives you, check out Ambire. Ambire works with all the EVM chains, the layer twos like Arbitrum, Optimism, and Polygon, but also the non-Ethereum ecosystems like Avalanche and Phantom. Ambire lets you pay for gas and stable coins, meaning you'll never have to spend your precious ETH again. And if you like self-custody, but you still want training wheels, you can recover a lost Ambire wallet with an email and password, but without giving the Ambire team control over your funds. The Ambire wallet is coming soon for both iOS and Android. And if you want to be a beta test, Ambire is airdropping their wallet token for simply just using the wallet. You can sign up at ambire.com and while you're there, sign up for the web app wallet experience as well. So thank you, Ambire, for pushing the frontier of smart contract wallets on Ethereum. Back with the questions for the week. The first one from Scotty. How bullish is 4844 for Eigenlayer? You must be referring to EIP 4844. Mm -hmm. Explain that and tell Scotty why or if it's bullish for Eigenlayer. Okay, so EIP 4844 makes this thing called Blob Space. Instead of Block Space, mm. you got Blob Space, which is first class Blob Space that is just for layer twos to put call data on. It's it's layer two blocks. It's layer two block block space. We call it Blob Space because we're weird. Um, and when we have 4844, layer twos can use all that block space and they can go super fast. And so it's, it takes off the brakes for layer twos. So our current layer twos get better. We have more room for more layer twos. Overall, 4844 is bullish for the layer two ecosystem. It makes Ethereum turn the idea and the whole vertical of layer twos into something that's just way better. Eigenlayer, I explained it earlier. Uh, it is not, these two things are not directly coupled. They are inside of the same sector and so they experience bullishness because both grow, but there's no intimate relationship between 4844 and Eigenlayer. Uh, Eigenlayer can secure more layer twos. It can secure types of layer twos. There's a layer two network out there called Mantle that's using Eigenlayer for data availability, but there's no intimate connection between Eigenlayer and 4844. So it's just like bullish for the sector at large and gives Eigenlayer more opportunity, but there's so no they're unrelated. They're kind of orthogonal then. They're eigenlayers restaking. Orthogonal is, is like actually just like they're only completely unrelated. You're yeah, saying they're no, they're yeah, they're, par they're in parallel with each other. They're going towards the same goal, but eigenlayer is not like waiting for bated breath on four eight four four or anything like that. Got it. Eigenlayer, of course, is restaking, which we yes. were talking about earlier in this episode. Yeah. Um, David, here's another qu uh, question. This one is from Jakara. Here they go. My smart friend. Oh, smart friend. Everyone should have a smart, smart friend. My wow. smart friend said that in 24 months, every Visa credit card will have an associated 4337 wallet attached to it. What is 4337 and how would that happen? By the way, I love Bankless, uh, the Bankless <laughs> Nation, giving us precise EIP numbers yeah. in their question. You're, you're okay, these are advanced it. questions. <laughs> Thank you for these questions. EIP 4337. First, mm, remind not, actually, everyone. Actually, not EIP 4337, Ryan. It's e not? What is e this? ERC. ERC. <laughs> you got me. Yeah. You got me. It's an uh, Ethereum request for comment. Also, rather than a Ethereum completely unhelpful <laughs> phrasing of what these things are. EIP, oh Ethereum Improvement Proposal 4844, is dank sharding. Also yeah. a crazy name. God, no wonder but like, the no difference, one comes okay, into but, this industry. But the difference be between an EIP, which is an Ethereum improvement mm -hmm. request, is it's going to take some code deployed mm -hmm. to get it working. And an ERC 
It's just, let's all agree on a standard. Yes. It doesn't actually require right. a, mm-hmm. part, a, a right. fork, a right. change in the code, not underlying protocol. So right. EIP versus ERC, right. that's the difference here. Yeah. EIP um, is like, more, hey, let's put this bit of code into Ethereum. ERC yep. is like, let's agree that this is the standard that we use at the smart contract layer. So Yeah, yeah, like ERC-20s. Right. A famous ERC. Yes. Let's all agree Good. that this is the Great way we do ERC. tokens. Top t- top three ERC. <laughs> top three ERC, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also put ERC four three three seven in there. Just since we're going down this rabbit hole, we're at, we're answering questions <laughs> that didn't that weren't that wasn't asked. ERC four three three seven could turn into an EIP. I don't think it would be called hmm. EIP four three three seven, but like you could take the guts and turn it into an EIP. How a bill becomes a law? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, to return to the question. My smart friend said in 24 months, every Visa credit card will have an associated 4337 wallet attached to it. What is 4337? How could that happen? 4337 is account abstraction. It's a smart contract wallet. Uh, the, uh, your smart friend is smart. They are paying attention. Uh, so Visa, with the leadership of Kai Sheffield, has done like primary research and innovation into smart contract wallets using 4337 on mm-hmm. Visa. They are, they are building out a smart contract implementation standard so that they can use it for reoccurring and uh, subscription payments on the Visa network. Um, I don't know about the idea of every Visa credit card having a smart contract wallet associated to it, but two years is a long time. Visa is directly pioneering this effort, and that conclusion would make sense. I don't have any further information beyond that, but we know that Visa is pioneering into the world of smart contract wallets. That's what 4337 is. So your smart friend is connecting some dots and perhaps knows something. Your smart friend is smart. Don't know about that timeline, but this is a a decent prediction. It's based in uh, some realities here. It's technically possible. David, you ready to get some takes of the week? Love it. Uh, We got three. Uh, Number one, why don't you read this? Yeah, because you don't want to read your own tweet. Ryan Sean Adams says, you'll never get a country to adopt ETH as money, in quotes. We don't need a country to adopt ETH as money, he says. We need an economy to adopt ETH. The largest economy in the world will be built by AI agents. Oh, it's an AI tweet. It's an AI tweet. Yeah, it's an AI tweet. They'll prefer a digitally native money unencumbered by nation states. ETH is machine money. Tell us about That's this. It. That's Sweet. it. I mean, the tweet speaks for itself. Yeah, I, I, it I think that uh, we have created a program money system that AIs are going to use, and AI agents are going to be called, become major economic players. Like AI agents are the future um, associations and nonprofits and uh, corporations. They are the A in autonomous. Remember DAOs, digital autonomous mm-hmm. organizations? Well, we needed the A part. This is the A part. This is the autonomous part. D-A-I-O's. Basically. Yeah. Wow. Do we just like create something here? I like so I I am actually less I think it's less important to get America to put ETH in its central bank balance sheet because um, the robots are going the AIs are going to prefer mm-hmm. a programmable money system that has no string that has no geographic boundaries, has no strings attached. You don't have to file in Delaware for this thing. You spin up private keys at a multi-sig and you got a DAO cooking, right? Like robots aren't going to be able to get bank accounts. They can on Ethereum, all right? Now, 
hopefully that this all goes well for us, David. I know we've been talking about AI alignment. That's don't a open up separate the AI issue. Rabbit hole. Don't don't do it. <laughs> Not gonna do it. ETH is machine money though. And by the way, when I said this, um, people are like, "You're changing the narrative already." I thought it was ultrasound money, and people are like, "Oh, this is you know world computer to ETH is machine money narrative switch." I will remind people again, like what? like no, the all internet. Of those go together. They all go together. Like the internet, there are many use cases of the internet. The internet's just email. The internet is like just e-commerce. I mean, how, like, of course, these are all narratives of the internet. Mm-hmm. It's like Ethereum has many narratives. Of course it would. It has many use cases. That's a strength. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, ETH being machine money makes it even more freaking ultrasound, okay? Right. <laughs> that ETH means- is ultrasound AI money to pay for computation on the Ethereum world computer. Why is that hard? so hard to understand? I don't, I don't know why it's <laughs> difficult, but anyway, uh, that, that's the take, David. Um, let's get to another one. This is yours. Can well, I read it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is just Ryan and David read their own tweets. Wow, <laughs> wow. We've gotten, uh, you know, but, but cringe. We're just tweets. reading our so tweets back and forth. All three. Okay, no problem. David Hoffman uh, goes, we should create an Anon account so I can read your tweets without really reading your tweets. Open money systems are public goods. The unit of account of money is a public utility. When EIP-1559 burns ETH, it's growing the value of a very widely distributed public good. EIP-1559 is a public goods mechanism. Man, your brain was thinking about money as well this week. And ETH. What do you mean by this? Hang on, you got to read the other two tweets. I'm not done yet. Oh, there's more. Yeah. Normalized thinking of money systems as public goods. We easily understand what happens when money systems break down due to currency devaluing. We should understand that increasing the value of money is something universally beneficial to the money system. How much investment and reinvestment has Ethereum received from ETH appreciation? How much has been donated to public goods because ETH went from 80 to 4K? How many startups and jobs have been created due to the Ethereum wealth effect? ETH is the most important public good. So this uh, was inspired by Hayden Adams' recent tweet about how we should redirect EIP-1559 ETH burning away from burning ETH to public goods. And I'm like, Hayden, no, <laughs> don't do that. We've already, A, we've already had that discussion. B, stop thinking that it's not already doing that. Burning mm-hmm. ETH is the most credibly neutral thing to do, and it's also contributing to public goods, the money that invests in this entire economy. That's my take. I get it. I get it. Good take. Here's a take from Eric Voorhees on a headline that he's reading from a news publication saying, a trillion dollar platinum coin could save the US from economic catastrophe in less than a month. It would be fast, legal, and no bigger than a regular coin. He goes, Eric goes this, thank God it would be no bigger than a regular coin. (laughs) What does that even mean? What is this headline? A trillion dollar platinum coin. This is a real thing. And it would be fast, legal, and no bigger than a regular coin. Yeah, just the idea of like, it's really important that people know that it wouldn't be bigger. <laughs> like, and, and we're not going to waste any more metal printing this $1 trillion wow. coin. What would, I guess people are thinking it's like, you know, like a dinner plate size right, coin because like, it's worth yeah, like a trillion dollars. Do you need multiple people to hold <laughs> the trillion it. dollar like, platinum? How heavy is it? What's it made out? Oh, it's made out of platinum. It is They're made really out of platinum. trying to make this out of platinum. What's the point Why? of using a what precious metal? Because like, What how, is how the I... point? <laughs> Unforgeable, David. You can't forge it. Why not? You can print why it. Why not print it on paper? This is 
this is a real conversation. So what is the context of the trillion dollar platinum coin? It's arising again, isn't it? Right. It's because we need a trillion dollars to backstop the banking crisis like is why this conversation is happening. It, it, it's the, it, isn't it the, um, the debt ceiling in Congress again? Have you been following this, David? No, it's raising its head again, again, for the, I don't know, 11th billionth it's time. It's like a part of our regular cadence. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like, well, rather than have Congress kind of raise the debt ceiling, well, let's just um, have Treasury mint a trillion dollar platinum coin. That's why this is coming up again. Right. Uh, I will. So for Bankless listeners, there is a uh, moment of Zen, which is Eric Voorhees being a stand-up comedian unintentionally. That is a very logical continuation of this conversation. So stay tuned for the very end of the episode for that. You can enjoy that. All right, David, what are you bullish on this week? I am bullish on Bankless Ventures. Woo! So Ryan and I and Ben Lakoff are raising a fund. Bankless Ventures, $30 million early stage fund. The, the, the line that I like to give is Bankless Media, the podcast you're listening to right now, teaches you how to explore the frontier. And then Bankless Ventures gives you the money you need to establish a settlement out there on the frontier. Uh, and so uh, we talked about this a while ago when Coindesk broke the news before we were really able to like talk about it now. Uh, but I wrote an article on Bankless, bankless.com. You can find it. It's called Why We Are Launching Bankless Ventures puts some of the backstory and the ideas and the thesis behind Bankless Ventures. Um, people are asking me like, okay, like what, what, what's, the, what's the thesis behind Bankless Ventures? Like what, what's the deal? And the thesis is that Ryan and I have really good deal flow <laughs> and we're putting it all into Bankless VC. Um, there's certain sectors that we of course are looking at. Um, who's gonna buy all the layer two block space? Like we need startups to buy the layer two block space. Uh, account abstraction, uh, the inevitable AI meets crypto intersection. Like all of these things are things that we're looking at, but really the idea is because of the position of Bankless Media, we're at the center of crypto, put all the deal flow in front that we get from the, the media network that we've created into Bankless VC. Uh, so if you're interested in learning more about Bankless Ventures and also the inevitable conflicts of interest section, which I'm sure some people are curious about, uh, that is available as a link in the show notes. Yeah. And we've got some cool advisors, Justin Drake, uh, coming aboard for this, mm-hmm. Anthony Sassano. And I heard you uh, pitching startups to come contact us as mm-hmm. well. If you're building yeah. something really cool yeah. in crypto, get in touch. Yeah. Um, uh, we are mostly full lots of fun, but if you are interested in being an LP, that window is still open. True. Credit investor, all that mm-hmm. jazz. Uh, Gary made us do that part, the accredited mm-hmm. investor part. I know. Sad. It's sad. It is sad. Uh, Ryan, what are you bullish on? I am bullish on another accumulation opportunity for uh, Ether, that mm. asset we've been talking a lot about mm-hmm. in the show. Um, it's low. I think ETH, the, the price of ETH is low relative to its value. Maybe it's kind of like ETH fair market cheap. value. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just looking at, you know that website that lists all the um, the assets, like worldwide mm-hmm. assets? Do you know uh, Home Depot, the company, yeah. is worth more than all the ETH in existence? That's right not right. David, is Home Depot stock ultrasound is it burning okay like is it like the cornerstone of the internet financial system can home depot stock be restaked to secure other decentralized i'm just like it's silly when you zoom out and you look at this context and um yeah eth is in one of those places again it's pretty close i'm not gonna say it's exactly how i felt about this asset in like um 20 i would say 2019 end of 2019 and early 2020 where it's just like oh we're definitely coming back we're dead like look at all this stuff that's being built and Mm -hmm. we went on kind of basically like a a rampage of like eth is undervalued eth is like it's undervalued hello it's undervalued i'm not quite there 
but I'm getting closer. I mean, <laughs> Home Depot, David. All right. <laughs> the when Ryan in eight to twenty years, when Home Depot stock becomes a security token on Ethereum and also collateral inside <laughs> the Eigen layer, I'm gonna come back and be like, actually, you can restake Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what though? What's cool is um, these there's accumulation opportunities where pe- mm-hmm. other people get a chance to get on board into crypto. And I'm so glad we had we have these. It's yeah. like it's you have the opportunity to be a settler, not a tourist. When other people aren't looking, you're doing your research, you're seeing what's going on here, you're bullish on it. You could take a very risky bet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ETH is kind of like that right now, and uh, it's a good time to buy, in my opinion. Not financial advice, David. We got a meme of the week. What are we looking at? Uh, meme of the week. Here we go. So this, I think, was a great uh, illustration of the AI alignment problem. And so that particular one, yeah, you sent this to me, Ryan. So uh, this is the AI alignment problem. Uh, so that little, there's this, okay, for the podcast listeners, there is this, I don't even know what you call it, a fucking monster. A Lovecraftian tentacles, monster. Like, it's spaghetti-like monster with teeth. And then all of these tentacles are converging to, like, put up this puppet face so that it's making this face because that's what you want to interact with. That's like ChatGPT. So like the interface that you need to like talk to this monster of like tentacles and eyeballs and sensors and all that stuff. And then you make the face and then the face outputs this like little nugget, which is like your input into ChatGPT. It's like, hey, uh, what is like, you know, the information that I want? And then it spits out exactly what you want. Behind the scenes, there's this like Cthulhu <laughs> that is making that happen. And it's unsupervised learning, Unsupervised, like in the back, in the black box, you don't know what the hell's going on. And then you have this face that it's making because we trained it to make that face, but the face is just like a puppet of Cthulhu. And then it spits out this little nugget, which is exactly a little bit of gold. It's like, here, a little happy smiley for. face. A little happy smiley yeah, face. Here yeah. you go. Uh-huh. And it's uh, RLHF. So reinforcement learning with human feedback. That's yeah. how it kind of learns. That's a smiley face. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, David, I thought memes were supposed to be funny. This is making me sad. Well, this wasn't a meme. This was a rug pull. This was uh, education about the alignment. Okay. Problems. Yeah, this is us I mean, turning us into an alignment podcast. I hope this is not true, is the bottom line, right? I hope this is just an artist's rendition, and we need to work to make it not true. Yeah. But the truth is, the truth is, from everything that we've done so far in this uh, AI alignment series, is we have no idea the nature yeah. Yeah, we of don't this know what's back there. thing that we've built. We don't know yeah. if it's a Lovecraftian monster yeah. or if it's just a friendly unicorn or if it's a zombie that we can kind of like train it to do mm-hmm. what we want or whether it's some kind of like an early stage consciousness. Like we have no idea. Right. And that is the scary All part All of the here. above. Yeah. So yeah. right here at um, uh, Montenegro, I've done two AI conversations right now, uh, which I'm going to uh, throw over to the podcast editors and underhand to you. Um, the line that has stuck with me, which I did a, a full-length podcast with this guy, um, where uh, the reason why AI alignment problem is an issue is because it is simply a reflection of human alignment. As in, when we look into that black box of AI, we don't understand what's going on, and then people see doom and people see misalignment, it's because it's actually not a black box, it's a mirror. And we are looking back at ourselves and be like, man, that's a human problem. Which The monster is us. The monster is us which does not make me feel any better. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we should get to the moment of Zen. Uh, David, tee it up for us. Laugh much more. (laughs) Yeah. Tee this up for, this is Eric Voorhees Mm -hmm. giving a speech as part of a debate, a classic Mm -hmm. speech uh, from 2018. 
I think you're going to enjoy this. Got to let you know before we fade into that, risks and disclaimers. Of course, none of this has been financial advice. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Next, let's discuss why fiat is bad money. <laughs> why should we care about cryptocurrencies and their attributes when we already have fiat? Fiat works pretty well, right? It's got pyramids and government buildings printed on it, so you know it's valuable. <laughs> also, it is backed by paper. Paper can be burned if you're cold in the winter. There's its intrinsic value. Try that with gold. <laughs> but a skeptical observer should know that fiat money is an absolute scam and something altogether inappropriate for an ethical market-based society. As I like to say, you cannot have a free market when the most important good, money itself, is centrally planned and controlled. Fiat money and a market economy are mutually exclusive concepts. Like oil and water, they can certainly be mixed up together when force is applied, but they will naturally separate and dispel one another over time. Indeed, the average lifespan of fiat is less than 50 years. The US dollar only became fiat in 1971. That's less than the length of William Shatner's career. <laughs> and as it happened, last week he announced that he has started to mine bitcoins as well. Regardless, when examining its specific properties as money, most ways, fiat is unimpressive. First, it is not scarce. It is systematically created out of thin air, with no limit on supply, nor can supply even be known. Fiat is willed into existence by politicians and banks because printing money enriches the printer at the expense of the public who holds the previously printed money. The phenomenon is known as inflation or currency debasement. Fiat also struggles with durability. Your fiat will only last so long as your bank permits, and even then, it slowly loses its value. Your bank can destroy your fiat with the click of a button. Ask a Cypriot. Ask an Argentinian how durable fiat is. With fiat, you are ever dependent on a third party with your wealth. Is that an attribute of money that you find attractive? Some people are comfortable with it because they trust their government. But requiring trust in politicians seems a poor foundation upon which to build a prosperous society. Finally, fiat is not nearly as portable as Bitcoin. Try to send an international wire right now. You can't because it's after 5 o'clock. How quaint is that? You can try tomorrow morning as long as it's not Sunday because apparently God doesn't want you to use the financial system on the Sabbath. <laughs> but even when successful, you'll discover it takes three to five days for your wire to arrive. You often have to physically go to the bank to do this. You have to fill out a form on paper while someone making $15 an hour takes that info and types it back into a computer. Why do people put up with this nonsense? Indeed, it is faster to strap cash to an anvil and FedEx it to Tokyo than it is to send an international wire. Do you really think that that system is going to outcompete Bitcoin in an open marketplace? And you can only send fiat if you have permission. Try to send it to a family member in Russia. You'll be censored. Want to donate to a relief effort, perhaps, in Venezuela? Too bad, you'll be censored. Are you sending a suspicious amount? Your payment will be blocked, and you better get ready for questioning or outright confiscation. Yep. The Orwellian nanny state is alive and well, and fiat currency is one of its most insidious tentacles. Fiat has these poor monetary attributes because it is a tool and appendage of the state. It exists to serve the state, not to exist market participants. Its attributes as money are intentionally constrained and inferior so as to siphon wealth to the state through debasement and to surveil and control the behavior of the king's subjects. Remember that fiat means value by decree, not by merit. <laughs>